The following podcast is brought to you by Open G Records. I'm Chris, and today I'm sitting with my friend Chris Stark, who composed a work last night that was premiered on a celebration for Stephen Stuckey at National Sawdust to, I think, great effect. Uh, I'm really happy to have Chris here, and I just want to welcome you to the Man Cave and to Open G Records. Thanks. Yeah, nice man. Perfect. So, um, your piece last night, uh, I'm just going to start with that and then we'll talk about who you are. Your piece last night was ended up being the third piece of an opening set that included the Brahm, a Brahms intermezzo, a piece by your mentor, Steve Stuckey, and then a premiere from you that you delivered in, what, a week, basically? Roughly. Two, two days. <laughs> two days. <laughs> See, that's prodigious just basically in itself. How uh, I felt... And when this will be broadcast on Q2, and, and, and that's when we'll put this podcast out, so people will be able to actually hear what we're talking about. But um, how intimidating, first of all, or, or what were your initial feelings about writing a new piece for someone for whom you had such great respect? Uh, it was really intimidating, actually, uh, but at the same time, also felt very honored to try to share something like that uh, in that setting. So the the interesting thing is that um, I feel very weird actually calling him Steve because he's always been Professor Stuckey to me, you know. But <laughs> right. Only recently well, actually did he become Steve to me after I graduated and sort of got a job. And I totally a, understand. Became a sort of, you know, in quotes, colleague. He's obviously in a much, you know, he's like a... Uh, my hero, but but I bet that he regarded you as his, as his colleague when you when you made that transition to professional. Uh, you know, he uh, he probably was that guy who was like, okay, now you are my yes. colleague. I might be your mentor, but now we're roughly equal and on standing. And he was always very encouraging in that regard. He would always try to make you once you've sort of jumped these hurdles. Always try to say like, okay, now, you know. You know, very. You would say you can call me Steve now or something. It would be yeah. very like a very meaningful thing, um, but, but weird. <laughs> yeah, but it was always. I was always a difficult doing. Yeah, a difficult time doing it. But the, the strange thing about writing this piece in sh- such short notice is that he gave all of us so many tools to be able to do something like that, and I think um, I didn't have any of those tools when I showed up to Cornell. I had the ambition to create things, um, and I thought that I was just sort of inventing a language, like any sort of naive American thinks about their sort of rugged individualism. <laughs> and, and you have a particularly interesting background with the rugged individualism, but we'll get we'll get to that in a second. Please, please just keep going. But um, he <laughs> he sort of showed us all that there is a history and that there are techniques and that it's okay to be in dialogue with the history and it's okay to use these techniques because in the end they're just that they're just techniques and that any sort of emotion or voice or anything like that is basically I would say almost intangible but you have to be able to speak a language in order to at least say something and so he really we always talked about other people's music um, as far as the great composers of the past and he gave seminars on other people's music and there was actually very little discussion of your own voice or your own language or what you were like in quotes trying to invent even in lessons or even in lessons yeah it was you know he would find some little passage and he was unbelievably adept at 
uh, browsing a score in five seconds and seeing every point of which you are using possibly something that relates to somebody else. <laughs> it was it's crazy. Like an encyclopedic knowledge of of every gesture or or sort of passage. It's interesting. Yeah, and so he could just say like, oh, Ligeti Chamber Concerto here, or oh, uh, Bartok Microcosmos mm. here, or I mean, he could really hmm. grab these little uh, pieces and then. You could go and look at those things and see how that composer used them and, mm -hmm. and decide whether you thought you liked what that was expressing or not. And so, in writing this short piece, it was basically just little compositional tricks that he sort of taught all of us, like very simple things, actually. Like what? Um, so, for example, the middle part of the piece is just a sequence of chords that move in, in major thirds so that they cycle back around every three chords. I mean, he would never have repeated those chords that many times. I think of that as being something in my own sort of interest. But, but then using a melodic, using melodic material that's um, complementary, meaning that it's outside of those pitches, and so it has this kind of bittersweetness to it that I learned from him and also from Bartok in the, the fifth string quartet in the second movement. There's this just heartbreaking melody in it in which the first violin is playing pitches outside of this kind of tonal-ish chorale that the rest of the strings mm -hmm. are playing. And it has this feeling of being outside. But I think that's something, going back to his language, he could really express bittersweetness mm -hmm. really well. And, of course, this event is really... I was very honored to produce something for it or make something for it. Um, but it's also just incredibly tragic and heartbreaking. And so... It was so fast... Uh, you know, the same thing, actually, I don't know if you know, this happened to my mom. I, I, and it, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. It, it really hit me in a really odd place because she got diagnosed roughly at exactly the same, like December 1st. I know he was diagnosed slightly earlier, but, and then she died a week after he did, you know, it was like the exact same short three month train wreck time frame, And then it was done. And everybody's like, well, what just happened? What, what? Yeah. So I think the bitter part of it is still pretty lingering. It was nice to have some sweetness actually to add to it. And I think, I think your piece is really, really effective as, as a, especially just, I don't, there's no way you could have conceived of how the set was going to actually... Did you know the piece that was going to come prior to... Yeah, I didn't know, yeah. I didn't know the, what Zach was planning to play. Yeah, and then just the way that your piece just kind of announced itself was pretty spectacular, I thought. It was really, really well done. I hope... Um, you know, I mean, one of the things I try to do as a player and as uh, a producer now is to be true to composers. I really believe in the singular genius of people. The more committee work that there is, the less good the art becomes. And so I was really pleased and happy. And I think it's a fitting tribute to Steve that something new showed up on this concert in this short order that... Yeah, you know, not only do people love me and come to the concert, but people that I worked with on this level are capable of delivering something special for me in that. Really great. Um, so let's talk about, we, we talked about rugged individualism. I'm always like, um, 
I, f I f figured out the other day that I, I have this pattern to these interviews, and it's mainly because I'm really super interested in how people grow up and how they decide to be to to enter this kind of insular, often maddening and um, impecunious profession that we that we're in. So, where where did you grow up? I grew up in Western Montana. Some people might know where Missoula, Montana is, uh, but I grew up about an hour north of Missoula, Montana in a town called Polson, Montana. I really only know it from A River Runs Through It, to be honest yeah. with you. It's about 60 miles north of uh, Missoula, which is where the Blackfoot River is, where uh, River Runs Through It takes place. Interesting. I, I, well, I, that movie has this little special place in my heart because I had a first date with a, with a woman who became a long-term <laughs> girlfriend, but the book is really beautiful. So what... Um, a lot of open space. What kind? Did you go to like regular public schools or? Yeah, I don't actually know if there was private schools. That's something I didn't really encounter that whole thing until I moved. Yeah, how many people were east. in your schools and whatnot? Was it pretty spread out? Um, there was only one school, like one grade school, one middle school, one mm -hmm. high school, and I want to say within each class there was maybe a hundred people or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, so my high school had about four hundred people, and that was the whole town's. High school right. students, <laughs> and uh, so how did you did you come? Did you play in bands or anything like that, or um, how did you come to start? Actually, what were what did what did your parents do? What... My dad's a general contractor, like a builds homes in mm -hmm. Montana. My mom is an X-ray technician, um, something she went to school with, but then was sort of a stay-at-home mom mm -hmm. because I have five siblings. Oh my god. And then she went back to work after we all sort of became of oh an my. age that we could take care of ourselves. <laughs> Where do you sit in that in that sex? Uh, I have three older sisters and a younger brother and a younger sister. So you're kind of smack dab in the middle. You're in the yep. golden section. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, what did what did you what were your early exposures to music um, in your in your house or in your life? Yeah, so it was all basically recorded music. I don't really recall seeing that much performed music. Um, my There was a, a sort of local series where kind of singer-songwriters or something, regional mm -hmm. people would come through town and play concerts once in a while. My parents would always try to take us what to kind that of sort stuff of stuff. Did you listen to? So my parents were big-time fans of you know Crosby, Stills, and Nash, mm -hmm. and uh, Simon and Garfunkel, mm -hmm. the Beatles. But they also um, really loved uh aaron copeland um you know some of the sort of leonard bernstein mm. so where did they get those where did they pick up those influences do you think that's a good question I Maybe actually it was bernstein concerts know. on pbs in the 60s or something probably actually from west side story or mm. starting out from something that was maybe mm. more popular like musical something like that um but from my my earliest memories, my absolute favorite thing to do in the world, and it has been my entire life, is listen to music. There's nothing <laughs> that's better than that to me. How did how how did you listen to it when you were? Was there a record player? How how what are you like three? How early are we talking? Like I I don't know. I, I remember my my you know aunts and uncles like to tell me that when I was two years old, they would just see me go sit at the tape deck and put tapes in and listen to tapes all day or something, mm -hmm. you know. And, um, we For our listeners, there used to be such things as cassette tapes, and you could put them in players and push play, and it took you forever, and you couldn't find the song that you wanted. 
And somehow if you remove the magnetic tape and put it into another plastic tape cassette, it worked again. Yeah. Nobody knows why. Awesome. <laughs> the pencil trick with like, you know, tightening the tape up. It's the joys that are, uh, that my kid will never, will never see. Um, so yeah, that's, that's early on. But then, you know, I, in a town like that, there's no, I don't recall there being really anybody that was playing that you could take lessons from or something. I had a piano teacher who was also like our, our church pianist or something like mm-hmm. that for maybe three months. Um, but she was really kind of terrifying. And I, <laughs> How old are you at this point? <laughs> so I quit. Uh, I was, you know, probably 10 or 11 mm-hmm. or something. In my, actually my, I lived in the same town as my grandparents, and my grandmother also um, played the piano and the organ at church. So she sort of encouraged me to do that. Um, but, you know, that was, having five siblings, you can't get away with practicing the piano in the middle of the house and <laughs> shout at me to, to stop playing and yeah. stuff and then I would get shouted at in my lesson for not practicing. <laughs> You're getting, yeah, no, there's no, there's no choice but to just stop. There's a path of least resistance in that case is probably your best choice. Um, so did you play any school instruments? Did you, you join the band? Yeah, so. sixth grade band, uh, took up the trombone nice um which was fun uh and that actually became an instrument that i studied seriously even though i really didn't have any intention to um because the university i went to the university down the road the university of montana Mm -hmm. and they didn't i had also played a lot of electric guitar and rock bands and metal bands and that was really what i thought my path was and uh, when i got to school they didn't have a guitar teacher so i had to play take trombone bust out the trombone <laughs> I wanted to be a music major well let's go back for just a second you say you were playing rock music and stuff what were your what were your influences in that in that area what stuff were you listening to that you oh man doing? it's it's almost embarrassing to talk about but no, man, I was come a on. huge Metallica fan All right. and a huge Megadeth fan okay Anthrax all that now sort I of know like which 80s, guy you were in high school 80s thrash stuff <laughs> and uh, just you know it was. I grew up also on, on a reservation, though, and it was really big on the reservation to play in metal bands. So there was all these great sort of like trailer park shows. Actually, I mean, those were my first <laughs> performing experiences. Actually, was playing in a double wide trailer, thirteen years old. With, <laughs> it was kind of crazy, actually. I'm sure. Look back on, yeah, it blew my mind. I was like, oh my god, look at what this music is doing to this crowd. Like, yeah, yeah. felt like the Beatles or something. <laughs> Um, so you let me back up for another second. Now you say you grew up on a reservation. That's different from the small town that you described before. What what's what the small the town was on the reservation? Yeah. Okay. So what are the differences between growing up on a reservation that might not be something that I would know? Just a basic mm-hmm. any sort. Well, the, there is a, it is an independent nation, <clears throat> so there are independent courts and government, and so there's like there are decisions that the the tribe will make about sort of how the land is used and um, how the commerce, all sorts of stuff that's sort of different from the surrounding area, now, which it, could only be 20 miles away or something. And so, and Native Americans traditionally in these situations have been much more progressive about conservation and certain things. And so mm-hmm. there's, you know, for example, like very little development of infrastructure of, of highways and of freeways or things like that because they resist that sort of stuff on the basis of preserving the the natural environment, which was amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you've ever spent time on a reservation, it's a really, um, there's a lot of poverty and it's a very um, intense place. It can be quite sad, quite, uh, you know, my, my hometown could be kind of, kind of sketchy, you know, Mm -hmm. like uh, 
certain parts of it could be somewhat dangerous actually which was also sort of strange in that sort of setting to have this small town in Montana on a lake with the mountains and also have it be kind of dangerous in certain hmm. parts and stuff like that. That's Are you Native American at all or are you just like I'm not Native American. There? No, yeah. my my family moved there probably it's probably my great grandparents or or my great great grandparents uh-huh. in the late either the early 1900s or late um like 18 I see. something and uh from Kansas I believe they hmm. from Kansas but yeah. That's I find that very very interesting. Um, okay, so now so you were you were metalhead. By the way, I wanted to take a sidebar. Have you seen Dave Mustaine playing the Four Seasons with the San Diego Symphony? No. It's the worst shit you ever heard in your life. I can imagine. That. I was really disappointed because you know I mean the guy can shred. I mean there's no doubt about it. But he's trying to play the the, the violin part, and I thought it was. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was somebody had superimposed, like, you know, had taken the film and added the shittiest guitar playing you ever heard. And when we're done, I'll have to show that to you because it's 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 beyond belief. All right, we're going to have some sounds from above from my son here in a second, but we're just going to leave it on the tape. We don't really... Okay, so now you're at college. You're, are, you're, are you still sort of a metalhead at college? Or you, you know, yeah. And, uh, and you're playing the trombone. And where where do you go from there? Undergraduate, Montana, where do you end up spending your master's degree? Is that Cornell? Uh, Cincinnati Conservatory. Okay, so where, what led you to Cincinnati? Uh, so I was really naive at, uh, graduating from the University of Montana, and I was not actually a very good student at the University of mm-hmm. Montana. It took me five years to graduate, and I think that most of my professors there probably thought I was <laughs> straight-headed for a burnout. I had to take a <laughs> year off. I worked at a FedEx Kinko's. Nice. I contacted this local composer who was a... He didn't teach at the University of Montana, but he's quite well-known in the wind ensemble world named David Maslanka. Oh, yeah. And so he lives in Missoula, Montana. I've played so much of his stuff. Yeah, he has this kind of super devout following of yeah. wind players. Yeah, and, yeah. I don't um, happen to be one of them, <laughs> but I've played well, a lot of this stuff. Him. No, it's cool, man. Hey, everybody, each to his kidding. own. You can tell him how much you love him if you want. Well, he was a really amazing teacher. He's a really amazing person, yeah. actually. And uh, so I just called him. I looked him up in the phone book and called him. I said, hey, you know, I'm interested in taking composition lessons, and I don't have any idea what I'm doing, but it would be great to learn more. And he was probably one of the first people compositionally that took me seriously, like really kind of said like, Hey man, you got to get it together. Like, Mm. you know, this isn't going to cut it. You have to start working harder. And I remember, you know, one week bringing in a, you know, I had a page of a couple sketches of some melodies or something. And he was like, here's a hundred pages of orchestra or band music that I just orchestrated this week. And I was like, Ooh, that's what that takes. Yeah. Um, but so that was my first experience with like a real pro Mm -hmm. seeing that stuff. And then he, you know, this is so weird, but his music was, had been recorded by the Cincinnati Wind Symphony. Right. And so I was like, oh, that's at CCM, so I guess I'll try to go to school. It's the Cincinnati Conservatory because David Mislanka's music was recorded by the band there in the 90s or something. So almost by happenstance, you end up at Cincinnati. Yeah. I ended up at Indiana for my undergraduate the exact same way. I knew jack shit about it. My friend went to Interlock and heard it was great. I was like, I'll, inter- I'll audition there. Yeah. Life changed. So, um, okay, cool. So now at Cincinnati, or did you go there as composition, mm-hmm. for composition? I mean, fortunately, they let me in, because I think I was really, really had little 
<laughs> to offer the program mm-hmm. but as a student but uh, that was that was amazing I loved it there the teachers were really cool people the you know being in a huge conservatory surrounded by musicians for the first time that were practicing all day and performing at a really high level and there's mm-hmm. tons of recitals and there's tons of opportunities and that was really um, an amazing experience of course it's only two years and it just flies by and, yeah um, masters takes no time at all but I feel like I really learned a lot in that that short span about just the profession because you know there wasn't any uh, in Montana like a or a culture of instrumental music really mm-hmm. um, so just being around that and seeing that there were people that had actually grown up their whole lives playing the violin or something I was like wow that's was that that's the amazing. first like sort of world class orchestra that you heard play live or had you the first orchestra I ever saw perform live was the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra mm-hmm. and they toured to Missoula, Montana when I was a freshman in college. I see. And they played, I want to say they played the original version of Appalachian Spring. Oh. So it connected these dots for me of growing up listening to Copeland and yeah. seeing an actual group play it and it was oh, you know, life changing. Like it was incredible. The best. It was the best. The yeah. 13 instrument version or what? It's 13, right? The best. And then for me, like the orchestration of it is just this lumbering brontosaurus of a piece. For me, I don't love it with the orchestration. My, my, my friend Scott, who you know in, in St. Louis, says that, um, I, I'm sorry to make this personal. He says that you can ruin, he goes, it could just show you how you can ruin anything if you just add oboes and trombones. Oh, <laughs> sorry, man. But it just kind of works out. That 13 instrument version is so crystal clear. And sure. so just like, oh, it's, uh, I, that has a very special place for me in my heart. Um, yeah, and I didn't realize how cool Cincy was, uh, honestly, until I'd made some friends there recently and gone there a couple of times and just been kind of like, it's a cool, there's a vibe in certain parts of that town that are really cool. Yeah, totally. And very I'm a sucker for that shitty chili uh, and spaghetti because I, I can eat <laughs> like so shit good. and I don't care. It's the best late night food there is um okay so um now you're seriously composing are you writing anything that you feel of consequence yet at at this level or what kind of forces are you kind of Mm. like writing for did you get performance a lot of stuff that included electronics um Mm -hmm. a lot of instrumental maybe solo instrumental um starting to write some orchestral things i mean i really had no idea what i was doing I, i I yeah. can't like really understate that, yeah, but yeah. I was, I had that, you know, sort of naive confidence that someone has when they have no idea what they're yeah, doing. Yeah. And so I was trying to do, you know, I was writing longer pieces and I'm sure they were just boring as I'll get out, but I was, you know, I thought they were really, you know, meditative or yes, something. And... I'm full of depth. Let me show you how full of depth I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but I don't think I really wrote anything that I would say was like professional quality until I got to Cornell and saw the level that my colleagues there what they were producing and I what see. my teachers were producing and that quickly sort of you know got me in the library and other things to to try working harder in a more sophisticated manner what were you using electronically to compose with at that point uh so i had a really great teacher at the university of montana uh, named charles nichols and he was a like a masterful teacher of uh, electronic music and he gave these great classes and one of the ones that really stuck with me was on this program called Maximus P. Mm-hmm. And that's something that now I'm 
teaching now, um, where I work now, and I use it all the time. And can you teach me better? Because I can only use it as a performer. <laughs> I would really love to be able to start to, to to really be more facile in doing my own complete shit by myself without anyone else, which is my dream world. Um, so let's talk a little bit after the Yeah, after it's a really show. great program. And yeah, if you man. like uh, solving puzzles or logic puzzles yeah, and things right. like that, it can really, you can waste a lot I've of time. I've heard some insane, <laughs> insane, the technology. I mean, you think about guys in the 60s and 70s splicing tape, you know, and uh, it's just the, the ability to just create a sound and fuck around with it, I, I, I swear on these things, so... <laughs> um, is pretty awesome. It's 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 incredible. It's, it would have been impossible thirty years ago. It's it's insane. It certainly has. It the technology has changed a lot, but the usage of it is actually. I think it was much more inspired back then, hmm. um, and I think because they just had more severe limitations, so they were more imaginative, probably. And uh, although there are people now doing some really incredible stuff, and. It's a real pain in the butt to put on shows with a lot of tech, um, but when it's done well, I think it, I think it sounds very current, very contemporary. And it's really it's so hard to make that work seamlessly. Mm -hmm. Even something relatively simple can be a fucking nightmare to put together and just like make sure that all the speakers work and, totally. and that just the connections are good. You know, I I, I I'm just longing. For some sort of universal wireless language that these things can just speak and that it's not, oh, this is going to connect easily to a Mac and this one's going to connect easily over here and this, that. It's, it's the whole internet and technological age, I think we're in the middle of like figuring out what the hell this is. I oh, think. totally. Yeah. Digital, the digital sort of transition that's happened the last 10, 15 years. I don't think we have any idea. No. I mean, even just the transition to social media and stuff, I have no idea how we're even interacting with one another. I think that in, the, in, in a thousand years, five thousand years from now, they'll look back on the invention of the internet and the interconnecting of the world like the wheel. Like, it, like that, that becomes like, anyway, uh, it's all like sure. four hours that we could spend talking about <laughs> being space monkeys and... All of that, but let's talk. Uh, let's get back and focus on on you and your relationship with Steve, because now that's going to become part of what you do at, at Cornell. Did you go there specifically to study with him? Did he invite you? What, what, did, what I went there. I applied there specifically because he was teaching there. I had read his book on Lutoslavsky. Lutoslavsky. Um, Is which, that the right pronunciation? Lutoslavsky. Yes, we learned this at Cornell. Um, I'm still going to say it the other way. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> I, I usually do too. Uh, so I read this book, blew my mind, um, and then I started to listen to his music, and I was like, oh, this is this is the guy. Like, this is it. This is exactly what I've always wanted, the kind of music I've always wanted to write and the way I've always wanted to think about stuff. And um, so I, I actually had that plan sort of early when I got to Cincinnati because I had met someone from Cornell, and I thought they were a really cool person. They told me it was a great program. And so when I started there, I actually had in mind this idea of the application for Cornell in this two-year period, putting this together, having this portfolio of works that works mm -hmm. for this process and all this sort of stuff. Um, so I really your did education my... became solely for the direction of going here yeah. with Steve. Like, yeah. And it was, I did put all my eggs in one basket, and when it, it 
fortunately panned out. I have no idea how, because I feel incredibly lucky, but... I mean, that was definitely one of the best days of my life when you get a phone call from Stephen Stuckey, who at that time is your absolute hero, and you've never met them. He's like a, cel- a celebrity to you, and you, <laughs> you get this call, and I, I almost like fainted. I like, couldn't respond to him on the phone. <laughs> That's amazing, man. That's really... And I still was, I still to this day, um, so intimidated by his presence, actually, hmm. like because I just admire him so much. Uh, and when I got to Cornell, I was so... I was in a weird way almost like afraid of him. The lessons were it was like being starstruck. I just didn't even know how to 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 talk to him. Um, did it, did you get over that? Did you how and how long did it take for you to sort of settle into okay, took a this few is years. Really... <laughs> a few years. I don't know if I ever really got over it cuz yeah. I admired him so much. Uh-huh. Um but definitely I mean he's a such a warm and generous person that he makes it easy to be be around him. One of the, I, I mentioned this at the concert last night. You know, I, I have not run into or spoken to a single person who doesn't have that opinion of Steve, and that is like almost miraculous to me. If, if I have at my passing, if people say that kind of stuff about me, I will, in my spiritual being. <laughs> Uh, consider that a success, man. That you that you were an actual good guy. I don't know why the world is not has some view of them, but it just is clear that Steve was one. Um. Yeah, absolutely. It's a. It's just. It's hard to state how weird it is. I'm certain for you than I. That it's just what we're talking about in the past tense. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. Uh, I'm going to try to figure out how to how to how to end this on a more on a more positive tip. And I think really, actually, the 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 uh, the best way to probably do that is to talk just a little bit about sort of the charge that Jeremy wrote at the end of the program notes last night, which I did post on obagrecords.com. If you're listening to this, you can go see the program notes where Steve, via his widow, and then via his own words and his son's words, basically asks us to be good to each other. Um, <laughs> any comment on that? How, how, how can we as musicians live up to that example? Besides just people... What kind of things can performers and composers do to live up to that? I think one of the things he told me that really changed the way I was approaching my whole life um, is that once he told me that everyone is trying their best. And when I sort of thought about that and I said, okay, you know, someone may be having a bad day or something like this, but everyone is trying to absolutely to, to do the best that they can. And I think that to respect that about everybody, um, it just opened up for me a different kind of way of interacting with people. So I know that everyone's trying to be the best person they can be, and everyone's trying to do the best job they can do on this or that. Or, you know, not not all the time do we get to write the best piece in the world or perform the best we've ever performed or something. But that there was a lot of thought and a lot of energy that people put into that, and to be just more supportive and kind and you know, I think there's a place for, for criticism and healthy criticism and stuff like that, but um, 
the creative arts are so difficult and it's really a difficult thing to put yourself up on a stage in front of people or put your ideas out in front of people it's really scary and um, i think um for me sorry for 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 me i'm a i'm a performer i have a certain element of control on stage i know what i'm going to do whether i execute it or not is one thing or the other but for you you have to let this thing go and then somebody else you got to watch somebody else take care of your baby that for me seems pretty stressful uh, honestly, um, I, I composed a little bit, uh, and I, I, it's just too much agita for me. I cannot take <laughs> watching somebody else try to, 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 to get my vision across. Yeah, it's scary. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, someone like last night, Zach Bjorken, takes whatever you put in front of him and turns it into the most amazing thing. I mean, it's more amazing than what you, what you composed. And that, then it, that's, that's, you know, then that's the greatest thing there is. Well, yeah. that's the best partnership between, I mean, our art is not an improvisatory art on the whole, you know, and so we need, uh, we need a, a, a text and then we, then we like Shakespeare and we need somebody to execute that text. And when those two forces are kind of thinking on the same level is where, is where great art comes in. Uh, well, Chris, actually, we're going to have another opportunity to do another podcast in St. Louis as we get close to doing another concert there that's going to coincide with an enormous Boulez performance with the St. Louis Symphony. Uh, that'll be really cool, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you again and talking to you on tape again and and playing your music, because uh, right after we turn off the, this podcast, I'm going to prop you for uh, a proper... Uh, uh, what do you call that? If, uh, I commission you a proper commission and, uh, and we're going to get it done. Me, Zach, whatever we decide to do. And I'm glad we're doing it. Thanks for coming in today. And I'm looking forward to a lifelong partnership with you. Thanks. Thanks for the interview. And thanks for the concert last night. It was incredibly meaningful for a lot of people. Um, spent the evening hanging out with a lot of my colleagues from Cornell days and things like that. And we were all feeling like that was a really special event so thank you for that i'm pleased to have done it for everybody and i'm really really happy that you were involved in that and that it worked out so well so thanks for everything and thanks for listening everybody and we'll be back later